Under the sea, under the sea. Darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. Hello, welcome to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for late August 2017. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Pandemic Legacy. Hi, my name is Tony Carnivali, and my game of the week is not Buck Rogers' Countdown to Doomsday. Bonjour, mes amis de la mer. My name is Bruce Garrick, and my game of the week is not Spirit Island. Oh, it should be. Yeah, well, I, I can't because it's not here yet. Oh, it's, good it's, point. It's, it's All right, coming. We'll, we'll talk later then. Uh, yeah. I noticed he started speaking in French. Uh, Jules, did Jules Verne, did, did he write in French? Yes. Uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, that's a bunch of English words as far as I can tell. <laughs> but Tony, you're, it, it, he was originally, he wrote in French and we're just reading translations? He wrote in French. As far as I know, he wrote only in French. And in fact... The commonly understood English translation of the title of his novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, is incorrect. <gasps> what is it? A more close to the original title would be 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas. I think that's important because I remember being confused as a child thinking the 20,000 Leagues was vertical depth. Yeah, I think a lot of people man. think that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you specify just one sea. Right. That's that's important. What Yahoo blew that? I don't know. Nineteenth no, century Yahoos. Yeah, man, translations. All right. Well, let, let's talk about this board game. We've been all playing uh, Nemo's War, which is, is that a translation? Second, uh, yeah, yeah, in French, uh, Le Guerre de Nemo. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> uh, it's the second edition of Victory Points game, d- designed by. I'm never clear on the the terminology of design or develop, but let's say it's created by. Uh, it, it's Chris Taylor, right? Christopher Taylor. Correct. Right? Which is yeah. very confusing because it's the third Chris Taylor in game development. Yeah. Wait, really? Yeah. There's the guy that does Total Annihilation. Uh huh. There's a guy from the Fallout team, right? Yeah. Uh huh. And there's the uh, the fellow who's done Nemo's War. Yep. For some reason, I thought the guy who did Nemo's War was the same as the guy from the Fallout team. Is that definitely not the case? Oh, you know, maybe. No, you're right. No, you're right. You're right. That's yeah. true. Okay, we're back to only two. Okay, two. Chris oh, Taylors. Only two. Yes. That's way more manageable. I can handle that. Okay, yeah. good. Uh, so we've all, I think, have we all played the first edition? I know you and yes. I have, Bruce. Tony, you yep. know the first edition, right? I have played it. Okay. So now here we come with the second edition. It, it was a Kickstarter. It's got bigger production values they've gone in and they've tinkered a fair amount with the design um we've all been playing this it's a solitaire board game i think we're all acquainted with solitaire board gaming there might be some of you listening who are like what solitaire board gaming what well if you play solitaire video games there's no reason not to do it with board games uh so let's then talk about this second edition um by starting with uh Tony, you've been playing recently, and you mm-hmm. seem to have some reservations about this idea of uh, of victory conditions. So tell us the, how the system in Nemo's War works and what your issues are with it. All right. Um, so I wouldn't say I have reservations with uh, the victory conditions, um, but I do think that some – okay, so I guess I'll just start from the beginning. In Nemo's War, during the setup process, one of the first things that you do is you select a motive for Captain Nemo. Um, By the way, Captain Nemo, I think, is demonstrated pretty conclusively in this game and presumably in the novel to be a real dick, kind of. He's really, he's like, 
He's sort of like a gangster of the seas. He's just <laughs> sowing seeds of chaos and starting wars. Yeah, but he goes um, but mad anyway. when his first officer dies. Oh, really? Well, you lose an emo. That's true. Oh, yeah. Um, Continue. So you select a motive, and there are four motives. And these motives are just uh, a list of how you get victory points. Or not necessarily how you get victory points, but bonuses. They're bonuses to categories of victory points. And usually they're also um, uh, the opposite of bonuses, uh, demerits to certain categories of victory points in order to influence your behavior uh, over the course of the game. So, for instance, there are two motives that are kind of peaceful called explore and science and there are two motives that are a little more military oriented and those are called anti-imperialism and war and so if you choose the explore motive you get bonuses to you get big bonuses i should say to uh finding uh treasures and what's the other thing wonders of the world what is the science uh, science Science and wonders you get a big wonders that's right yes and Uh, not just not just tony bonuses but multipliers yeah, like I consider that a, a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sure. Well, right, 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 but not like just a plus one, plus two. Like it, right. it, it makes a dramatic difference in how you're scoring points based on what you're doing. That's true. Yeah. Um, and on the flip side, uh, literally on the flip side of the motive cards, the anti-imperialism and war motives give you uh, not as significant bonuses for wonders, and I think no bonuses in some cases a demerit for treasures. They you still get victory points for getting treasures. Uh, you just don't get as many as you would if you chose Explore or Science. Uh, but in, on the other uh, hand, you get bonuses for sinking warships. Um, and there's some other stuff. There's like 10 different kinds of victory points, and each motive comes with the multipliers and negatives and stuff. So uh, what Tom referred to as a reservation is really just, I think... Um, my feelings on these motives and the ones that are uh, much more likely to result in a high score, just based on my understanding of the game systems, not based on hundreds and hundreds of playthroughs or anything, but just based on the kind of knowledge that one would get after one plays a couple times and reads the rules. It seems to me like, the warlike motives, and in particular the motive specifically called war, uh, affords you a much greater chance of making it through the game with a high score. That's not to say it's not possible to make it through the game with the other motives, um, but I would be very surprised if it's possible to consistently make it through the game with a high score, with as high a score, using the explore motive as uh, as the likelihood of making it through the game with a high score using the war motive. Right. So you suspect that the game system is, is in or in proportionately rewards the aggressive motives. I think so. And I'm, I don't right. know, I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's by design or if these motives are in a way there are, there's another kind of difficulty levels in the game based on, uh, which, which you can mix and match by the way, through the setup, there's like five different, ways you can calibrate the difficulty of the game and you're given the option during setup to do it in these different ways and i but i think motives are another factor in that difficulty level and i think you know choosing war as a motive is the easiest 
difficulty level, so to speak, and explore or science may be the hardest. Okay. Um, I have thoughts on this. Garrick, what's your initial reaction to this? Well, first of all, I just want to make sure that I'm sure that a lot of the listeners, most of the listeners who are listening to this are not going to have actually played the game. So I might want to just go through the the system a little bit more um, that to say that the the, the game basically represents the world in in the sense of uh, various oceans and seas. These are all connected. Each turn, ships show up on these seas trying to kill you. And they can be warships. They can also be merchant ships, which are basically targets for you to sink and get victory points for. You can also get treasures by searching the seas. You can also help various insurrections and native independence movements by causing uh, uprisings. You can... Let's see what else you can do. Oh, and you go through an adventure deck where they're they're basically... uh, advantageous encounters in the sense that you roll dice, try to succeed, and then you get a bonus or you get some sort of of benefit for having fulfilled the conditions of the card. And this happens every turn. The tension in the game is that after a while, the seas are full of ships and they not only cause you to have negative modifiers to your die rolls when you have uh, warships that are visible in your sea when you try to do things like do uprisings or, or inside uprisings or search for treasure. But if the seas fill entirely with warships or with ships at all, frankly, then you lose. And part of the tension of the game, a big part of the tension of the game, uh, is that you are trying to clear the seas of ships. And I think that that is Tony's complaint, or not even really complaint, but observation, which is that if you have a motive which rewards you for doing the thing that you're probably going to be doing anyway, it's a synergy, right? It's it's sort of you're doubling up. And if I'm going to be clearing seas of ships, then I'm getting victory points for clearing those ships. And I don't have to go off and do other things like search for treasure. I happen to think that this is not correct. But uh, that is what I understand. That's, that's the system, and that's what I understand Tony's uh, – observation to be my I, I just real quick want to uh, elaborate on what you're saying bruce before we get back into this sure uh, what you're describing is basically a, a solid solitaire board gaming's formula is that you've got a board and you do actions on this board to earn yourself whatever it takes to win victory points usually but a system is building up steam against you and it is limiting the number of actions you have to use and anybody who's played for instance, pandemic will know the basic formula. It's in pandemic, I'm running around, I'm curing diseases, I'm earning points, but the diseases are filling the world and it's getting harder and harder to push them back. There's a similar structure with the warships in Nemo's War. And the basic design is kind of uh, just that, that it feels very different, but that dynamic of pandemic is that there's a system that keeps pushing me back and making it harder for me to do what I need to do to earn points. And uh, Tony, it sounds like you're saying I always need to kill ships <clears throat> to earn points. So uh, why don't I always take a not? Wouldn't I always take a motive that rewards killing ships? Um, yeah, um, there's a couple different ways you can lose the game, and uh, it, you can go the whole game and never collect a single treasure, and that will not lose the game. You can go the whole game and not get any science points, and you won't lose the game. But if you go go the whole game and you don't kill 
probably 30 to 40, possibly 50 ships or more, you will lose the game. Um, and in my m- most recent completed playthrough, I was playing with an anti-imperialism motive, and almost every turn I was taking on ships. I really wish I counted everything I'd, uh, I'd, I'd destroyed by the end of the game. Uh, I didn't do that. But I must have taken out between 40 and 50 ships, and the I still lost from the uh, from the ocean filling up. Um, now, uh, that's you know, uh, it, it 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 just makes me wonder about the viability of getting high scores with uh, those other motives. Right. All right. So, Bruce, you you disagree with that? <clears throat> like like you you take issue with this uh, this observation about. The, the game's balance skewing towards you have to get 30, 40, 50 ships. <clears throat> yes, especially since the board, as it is constructed, the what you call the tonnage board is only has room for 36. So if you actually kill 40 ships, you probably will have filled the whole tonnage board. And that will give you the maximum Scourge of the Seas score. I don't think that's the most efficient way to play the game. Now, I have some notes that I've taken. And I just want to ask you guys a few things, okay? Do you know how many treasure markers there are in the game? No. Good question. I'm going to guess 60. Very, very, very good, Tom Chick. There are 59. Oh, man. What? First of all, who puts 59 treasure tokens and doesn't just throw the extra 60th in there? What the heck? That's I, I I assume that's from the book, right? That there were only fifty nine treasures. <laughs> I see, right, right. Fifty nine so, treasures of the world. Yeah. Okay, fair right. enough. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, if you just take the numbers on those treasure tokens, you know how many points that adds up to? You mean like if you take all the ones that give you treasure victory points versus wonder victory points? Yes. Because some of the some of the treasure tokens they just have a gem. They give you a resource known as treasure victory points some of them are wonders of the world like uh, right, a lost right. city or uh, so, uh so just just the points just just don't worry about the because the lost cities are a separate type oh, so of, don't worry about the types of points just just, all just say how many points. points like all the points that are in there and the right, wonders so will, t- will wonders will treat separately so let's say there, uh, there are 11 wonders there are 48 treasure well, there's going to be hundreds i would say it's between zero two, and four points per token well no there's more than that there's ones with five i think but there's i would say so. uh i would in there yeah the, you got forty-eight I would say at least with numbers on them. Forty-eight numbers with two with with points on there. Right. Oh, forty. You're not. So you're one hundred percent not counting the wonders. Taking out the wonders because the wonders I'm going to do separately. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say one hundred sixty. Okay. Tom. Uh, uh, I'm going to say since they balance out, I'm going to say eighty. Okay, that's. We're both off. It's one hundred and thirteen. I was closest without going over. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the key now. So. If you just look at the – if you take that and then add the wonders. So let's say you're doing a war motive. You are only getting two points as a multiplier for your wonders, which means that if you have 11 wonders, that means you have a maximum – those wonders have a maximum of 22 points. Mm-hmm. So, so add that. It's 135. basically gives you 2.3 VPs per token. If you take – the explore motive, which in the game it suggests that the initial that early players take the explore motive, and you add those seventy seven, so it's seven times eleven. You add those seventy seven points, you now have one hundred ninety points 
and you're also getting plus one point per token because that's just what you get. Every treasure token is actually also worth one point. Right. So add another 59 points, you've got now you have 249 points and you get 4.2 victory points per token you draw. Okay? Right? Yeah, I don't dispute that treasure tokens have a lot of victory points. Okay. Now we go to the warships. Okay. You know how many warships there are in the game? I could probably do this. 30, and then there are uh, 14 yellows, so 44, and then there are. No, I'm one, talking about two, warships, not non warships. Take the 30 non warships. Okay, so 14, and then well, one, but those, two. If those three, get flipped four, over, five. those are warships. Aha, uh-huh, but, 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 but. So I'm going to say uh, 29? Uh, you, they're 39. Okay. With everything. There's like, uh, gosh, I can't remember now. Uh, 39 actually, plus. I wrote potentially, it. plus more because the non warships, any non warship has the potential to flip over depending on the state of state of the board and become a warship. And that's right. what. Th- but more? if you're if you're killing all the ships, then you're not going to be in the in the situation where the non warships are flipping, right? right? So the, the, the warships are the, the non warships. I see as your carbon sink, right? That's where if you have the board full, you can flip non warships into warships. But if you're cleaning those guys out, then you're never going to get to that point. And, my, and I'll just skip all the, the, the numbers for, for people. You basically, if you add all the non-warships in and you're just going for warships, because if you have war and you're looking at the warships uh, versus non-warships total, you're basically getting two and a half victory points per uh, token, per warship. Per warship, warship. Right, right. Yeah. And well, so, uh, wait a minute. Sorry. So are you, you're not including the bonus on that? No, I am including the bonus. Two and a half points. Wait, hold on. <laughs> I don't. How is that? I don't see how that's. So, so I did some numbers here. So the, the, what I did is I also took out the the reds in general because you're never going to get all those reds out, and I added in the warships. The, I'm sorry, added in the non warships because as you're drawing tokens, remember at the beginning, you have to draw the war non warships before you can get the warships, or you can, you're 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 actually thirty non warships to only fourteen warships. So if you're actually going for warships, you may not be getting them on the board. So if you're just taking ship draw, like I draw a ship and I'm getting warship victory points for it, I have to count the non-warships because they're all in the pool. And actually, I'm I'm being a little generous because you're not placing the blue ships, the green ships in the pool. You, you may never place the black ships because they come up on event cards. Okay. So those guys may never come up. They're coming up later in the game. So you're drawing against a giant pool of 30 non-warships just to get a warship, and you're only adding those extra ones for many fewer draws. Um, so okay, you go on. T- you, so you can take that probability and, and actually figure out, well, how many warships are there really if you count every ship that's in the game as one ship if it starts in the beginning of the game, then some of the later ships are probably like, you know, 0. 0.3 of a ship, right? Okay, I uh, are. Do you have more to say? <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot of numbers. My point. So I just wanted to say this in a sort of a quantitative way, because this is the general gist of my theory about this, which is that you don't actually have to kill all these ships not to lose the game. And I found as I play, I mean, I think the last game I killed maybe 25, 30 ships. 
used some for salvage when for the non-players out there who are listening salvage is where you can take ships not count the victory points but use them to upgrade your nautilus so you can get cool things like torpedoes you can get better engine a strengthened prow so you can do more damage things like that so my sort of hypothesis about this and i have i have limited experimental data to back it up but my hypothesis about this is that you're actually much better off drawing treasure tokens out of the treasure bin at a 4.2 clip than you are going and attacking warships because remember those are the victory points that you get just from destroying the warships what about all of the damage that you're taking from the from the warships hitting you and you having to spend turns so there's an opportunity cost because again for the non non-playing listeners you can spend turns refitting resting uh, basically fixing your your hull, uh, replenishing your crew, but that costs two actions, which is twice as many points as it takes to do everything else, and that's a big limitation. That it, that is those are two actions that you can't be doing something else. So if you're going to be attacking a bunch of warships, those things fire back at you, and they get to fire first, and very often they hit you, and they can do a lot of damage. And if you fight three, four warships in a row, and you're unlucky, you may be sitting for a while trying to fix that problem while the seas fill up. So I'm not convinced that this problem is the problem that you're, uh, that, that that you're hypothesizing. Okay. And, and well, Tony, I have, I, I, can I can I just because yes. uh, so Bruce Bruce has kind of taken a, a mathematical scientific approach. Uh, I just want to bring up a game mechanic that I think counters uh, what you're talking about. But do you want to do you want to respond to Bruce first, or should I, do have I jump a quick in? Response. Okay, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I don't think your, your numbers are entirely fair because when you well, I it, there's no just no. I'm not going to dispute that there's a lot of potential for victory points in the treasure bag. Mm-hmm. Um, but each time you sink uh, one of those ships, you're not just getting the points, the, uh, the face value of the points on the ship, plus the bonus. You're also getting, as you mentioned at the beginning, the, what is this called? Scourge, scourge of the Seas points, yep. mm-hmm. which start at uh, eight points. Your first ship you sink gets an eight-point bonus, uh, whatever sea it's in. Then if you're in the same what do you sea... Mean? Wait, what? Yeah, you have to sink one in each sea, you know. Huh? You have to fill up the column to get the points. You have to fill up the column to get the. Oh, you have to fill up the column to get the points. Cost yeah. you six. Cost you six ships to get those eight points, and they all oh. have to be separate. They all have to be separate. <laughs> well, I haven't no gotten wonder. that far. I haven't. I haven't finished the game yet. So I haven't. No wonder. The, so, so absolutely. So Tony, if you were just thinking you got that per ship in the column, you're you're hypothesis would be absolutely correct. That's an absurd number of points from the ships. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But that's not that's not the rule. So that does change a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I, but my other point is, okay. um, you, I, you so you did finish the game recently and you sent a picture of the board uh, to us. Yes. And you do know that you were one unlucky placement roll away from that game ending and you having a score of zero, right? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. I know. Okay, and you were one unlucky treasure draw away from the game ending, and you having a score of zero. Uh huh. Because there's treasures that give you some notoriety points, and you were just a couple notoriety points away from your pariah loss there. That well, so, you know, so if that's, Brett Boone hadn't hit that home run, uh, the Yankees wouldn't have beat the Red Sox. Uh, uh, guys, well, I'm just saying 
<laughs> it, I'm just saying it's a very tricky balancing act. Um, and so I want to talk about that balancing act because that I think is also gets at, at what uh, where this motive system is really a clever part of the design. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the new things in the second edition that was not in the original version, uh, and I believe what happens at Victory Point Games is the person who makes the first version of the game, they're very hands-on, and eventually when they're going to do a second version, a second edition of it, uh, Alan Emmerich, who's the CEO over there at Victory Point, he sort of takes over the reins, and I'm not sure the original designer is that involved in the process. That first edition, Nemo's War, all Chris Taylor. Second edition, Nemo's War, it's Alan Emmerich building on Chris Taylor's work. I believe that's the case with with Dawn of the Zeds. I believe that's the case here. Okay. Um, So one of the things that Alan Emmerich has done with this second edition, uh, I feel draws from Dawn of the Zeds in that it seeds the deck. You, you, You sort of partially construct the adventure deck from the get-go. Now, the adventure deck, the types of cards, they don't vary. It's not like in Dawn of the Zeds, you had cards of differing severity, and over the course of the game, the cards will get increasingly severe as you went through the deck, which is also a clock. Here, the deck is also a clock, but there's no sense of some cards are worse than others. You can get a great thing early on, you can get a great thing later on, you can get a terrible thing early on, a terrible thing early on, later on. But what they do with the deck in terms of building it is they add act transition cards at specific intervals. So if a deck has – I think I should know this – like 36 cards or whatever, 30 – let's just say 30 cards. Uh, you would think, okay, the first act is the first 10 cards. The second act is the second 10 cards. The third act is the third 10 cards. But that's not how it works. You build the act structure based on your motive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you choose – from the get-go, okay, what motive am I going to go for in this game? Uh, and the original game did it a little differently where you didn't really have to lock anything in uh, until Nemo hit a certain point of madness. And right. then he was like, okay, I'm going to do this. So you just played, you saw how the board shook out, and then later in the game there was a, a point where you had to decide, okay, I'm war, I'm anti-imperialism, or I'm science. Here you have to decide from the get-go because it's going to affect how the deck is built. Now, what changes at each act – is the number of ships that come out. Because as you progress through the acts, you add dice that you roll each turn, and each die that you roll brings out a ship. So when you set up an aggressive motive, namely the anti-imperialism or the war uh, motive, when you build the deck, the acts transition sooner. Mm-hmm. So you are playing the game with more dice for more turns to bring out more ships. Right. When, when you decide from the get-go, I'm going war, anti-imperialism, you are going to make sure that you draw more ships. That's just physically how the rules work because you're going to get to those transitions that add more dice into your role much more quickly. When That's you true. choose a more passive motive, science or exploration, you spend longer with fewer dice. Those transitions are buried deeper in the deck. I'm playing at Act 1 and Act 2 a lot longer, and I'm not having to roll as many dice to bring out as many ships. And this plays into this idea that if Nemo is aggressive, the world powers respond to him, and they go hunting for him. If he's just cruising around studying kelp and visiting wonders of the world and looking for treasures, the world powers don't really care that much. They're not going to be as bothered by him. So I feel like there is a dynamic built in based on your choice of motive for whether or not warships become a problem. 
And one of the big issues that you just mentioned, Tony, is as you sink warships, you go up this notoriety track, and there's a failure state on that notoriety track. If 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 Nemo gets too infamous amongst the world powers, uh, they just he loses the game because they've committed everything to hunting him down. Uh, so the number of ships also influences the notoriety track, and furthermore, the notoriety track influences what powerful ships get put in the cup, and eventually how many dice you roll. That even yes. adds additional die. So right. there's this whole uh, very flexible, elastic mechanic at work here that from the get-go is set based on if you're playing an aggressive game or a passive game, a less aggressive game. Yeah, but I don't know if I uh, put that a ton of stock in that mechanic for these reasons. First of all, if you take the war motive, your notoriety limit is 51 or something, super high. It's very high. Right. Uh, you you can rack up a whole bunch of notoriety uh, without losing the game. If you choose explorer or science, your notoriety level is the, the difference between explorer or 36. It's 15 points. There's a 15 point difference between the explorer and the um, cool and the yes. war. So explorer is 36 and science is 26. Which and, are and pretty low. War is low. 51. Mm -hmm. War is 51, which is huge. Uh, additionally, if you start out with a war motive, you, you have the option, and you should always take this option, of starting with the periscope device Nautilus upgrade, which uh, does not uh, subject you to the plus one notoriety you get between consecutive bold attacks, which is huge because bold attacks are your primary mechanism, no matter what your motive, in clearing ships off of the board. And so if you're playing as an explorer or a science or even anti-imperialism, uh, you don't start with that upgrade, and you may never have the option to get that upgrade, which means every time you sink more than one ship on one action, you are getting an additional notoriety, uh, which uh, is inching you closer and closer to your already fairly low notoriety limit, as opposed to the war uh, motive, where your notoriety, your notoriety limit is 51, and you have the added bonus of not even having to increase your notoriety between uh, bold attacks. And the other thing, uh, which we haven't touched on yet, is that toward the end of the game, you have the option of changing your motive, yes. which you can use to, which I haven't even delved into yet, but uh, you could use that to game the distribution of cards in the deck. In other words, you could set up the game with the deck uh, and the dice schedule, so to speak, of an explore motive, which is fairly lenient in terms of filling up the board with ships, as you guys said. And then toward the end of the game, you can pull a switcheroo, change to a war motive, and get points for sinking ships. Now, I don't know if that... Yeah, that's a, that's a that terrible will, plan, that's though. A terrible I think, idea that, I think exactly that probably that. is a terrible idea. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you wouldn't have, you know, you wouldn't have the... Uh, I do think the best parts of the war motive, though, are the high notoriety limit and the Nautilus upgrade card that you can start off with, and neither of those things would be uh, in your favor for most of the game if you didn't start with that motive. So I think you guys are probably right. Um, but anyway. Well, let, let's then talk about uh, this, this idea of changing motives, because as I mentioned in the original game, you just sort of picked a motive from the get-go, and then at a certain point, you, you locked in what you were going to actually do. And mm -hmm. there was no penalty for changing later in the game. There's no mechanic for a different setup based on a different motive. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you guys feel about this changing motive idea, and have you ever done it? Do, do you think there's even a point for that being in there? Uh, and the idea being, once you get to the third act, you then – 
have one option to say, whoops, this science thing isn't going well. I'm instead going to go for anti-imperialism. Or you can change to any one of the three other motives. How do you guys feel about that mechanic? Have you ever used it? Uh, Bruce, why don't you start off? I think it's completely – I think it, it, it is unnecessary and it's sort of the exactly what you said about the way that the game stacks the deck basically makes it un, not useful because – in the old game, you could sort of play the game, figure out where, when I say old game, in the first edition, when you played it, you could sort of do things, kill some ships, explore some stuff, get some points, and then figure out how you, you, you amass this, this, this mass of points through various tokens and, and ships. And then you could calculate, figure out, well, if I use this combination of bonuses and multipliers, my massive tokens is worth x if i use this other combination it's worth y but as you i think we're alluding to if you set the deck to be a war motive and all of a sudden all of these warships are coming out then it wouldn't make any sense to then switch to something else because you're you're going to be fighting those warships but you're not going to get the the advantage of the points for those for sinking those warships right. conversely if you are doing an explore motive or something where you're not getting points for warships you're not going to be meeting those ships, so switching to a war motive is going to penalize you at the end. So I don't really think that – I think that is an artifact from the old game that really doesn't make sense in this design. So you've never switched motives when you've gotten to Act 3? No, I have not. Right. Tony, have you ever switched motives at Act no. 3, and what are your feelings about that mechanic? Uh, I do suspect that it's probably pointless. I think if you – the reason to do it would be if things went differently than you had, had planned and you – racked up a bunch of treasures when you weren't expecting to, or you sunk a bunch of ships when you didn't expect to. Uh, but I think if that's happened, then you probably are not going to do very well, regardless of what your motive is. Uh, so I think it's probably not a necessary thing to have in the game. So I want to defend it because I actually love this mechanic for right. a very specific reason. And I think it's an accident that I love it, the reason that I do. Uh, on Board Game Geek, Alan Emmerich is super open about talking about the development and what decisions he made and why and what inspired him. And he's got a, a game tester named Wes Ernie, E-R-N-I, mm -hmm. uh, who is like Bruce, taking apart those points. Wes has uh, – and he even uses the moniker on Board Game Geek, I think, of Game Breaker. And he, he is a rigorous tester. He'll use like math and statistics and things I would never dream of applying to try to break the game. And, and he, he's been very helpful to Victory Point in terms of testing their games, and he's even made a few for them. So uh, – <clears throat> Wes at some point was talking about this mechanic and this point where you can change your motive. You get to the third act and you can decide, wait a minute, nope, I'm going to go for science instead. Uh, originally, uh, I think Alan uh, may be misstating mis, uh, how this worked, but I think he, he made it where there was a penalty if you changed motives. He wanted to discourage that. Uh, and Wes suggested, well, wait a minute, why don't instead of a penalty for changing motives, why don't we instead just give them a bonus, a reward for not changing motives? You know, rather than punishing a player, reward a player, you know, make it six of one, half dozen of the other, but make it on the positive side of, the, of that influence. Uh, and so that's what they did. And the reward is you get to choose any tech from the game for any upgrade for the Nautilus and put it into play. You don't earn it instantly. It just becomes available for purchase. So this is this idea where rather than discouraging people from changing motives, they encourage you to 
to, to stick with it. Now, what I'm not sure they realize, and I, I could be mistaken, maybe they, they appreciated this all along, the tech upgrades for the Nautilus are huge. There's not a single one that's just like, oh, you get plus one on the die roll for this mm-hmm. or that. Or take another. They're, they're huge. They determine how the game plays. And as Tony alluded before, when you start with the war motive, the whole type of periscope you get has a fundamental impact on the game mechanic. Each motive starts you with one free – well, you still have to pay for it – with one automatic upgrade, one automatic game mechanic that might never come into play otherwise because otherwise you just flip up four of the ten tech upgrades, and there's an 11th lurking in the adventure deck that may or may not show up. Uh, you just flip up four of them, and those other five – most likely you're never going to see them barring, I think, two events that can happen in the adventure deck. So what happens then at the transition to Act 3, you get to pick any one tech and put it into play. And there is no single tech in this game that isn't useful. There's no single dynamic, and I think for all sides, some more useful for others for different motives, but all of them are helpful. Uh, There may be one or two you could do without. So what this means is that when you get to Act 3, I don't think you're ever going to change motives. That's silly. You guys are right. Maybe possibly I could see going from one aggressive to another aggressive or one passive to another passive like saying, oh, you know what, wonder's not working out. I've got a bunch of science cards. I'm going to transition to science. Maybe within those pairs you might transition, but even then I'd be kind of surprised if you did. More importantly, what happens at this point where you can choose a motive is you instead, if you stick with your motive, which you should, you choose any one upgrade to bring into play. And that's an enormous boon to the game because otherwise it's a luck of the draw. It's what you start with, whichever four get flipped up. To be able to go through the deck and pick any one upgrade, it's enormous. And here's one of the twists. When you take an aggressive motive, anti-imperialism or war, that transition, that Act 3 transition occurs sooner in the game so you have longer to play with whatever new tech you you brought into play. Mm-hmm. You have longer to spend with that tech that you just decided, hey, I want this regardless of whether it was out there or available. So mm-hmm. when you take a more proactive motive, you are rewarded with a more proactive development on the Nautilus, and you get longer to play with it. So I love this idea that at the third act, not necessarily you can change motive, but at the third act, you can pick whatever upgrade you want. Uh, yeah. I think it was yeah. an accidental byproduct of them wanting to make that a reward rather than a punishment. They could yeah. have just accomplished that by by making you, by letting you do that and not letting you change motive. That could have been a more right. elegant way of accomplishing that, I think. And that's kind of why I think I wonder if they accidentally stumbled on this. And, uh-huh. uh, and I, I don't know, like it, it just uh, it definitely uh, tying it to the motive change feels a little weird and arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, I, I wasn't even thinking of that because that's just something that I do when I get to that point. Right. right? I just take the thing. I'm never really even thinking about changing motive. So I, I agree with Tony. You could just have said, OK, this is a thing that you do at this point in the game. I guess it kind of I guess there's sort of a, a feeling that you've foregone some advantage in order to get this other advantage. So you don't feel like you're just getting a free thing out of nowhere. But I, I really don't think that the switching motives is an advantage. So. Right. It's a, and I, I, that's why I have never switched motives. I don't think I ever will switch motives. Yeah. Even if I were to sit down and do the math and think, oh, well, if I switch motives, I'm getting 10 more victory points, mm-hmm. I would say, nope, screw that. I want to take one tech from mm-hmm. this deck and put it into play. 
Yeah. Uh, because even if I get great techs early on, that's great. Mm-hmm. Swell. I'm using those, but there's never a point where I'm like, well, I could, you know, where I, there's not another one in there that I could also use that right. I don't want. Uh, right. So I love that mechanic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's talk a bit about the production values. Obviously, uh, Victory Point Games has transitioned from a kind of print-on-demand where they have this laser cardboard cutter printer thing in their office that they would use to make games. This is a production that was uh, made in China and shipped over here. It's a traditional board game uh, production. How do you guys feel about the, the production design of this, the new artwork, the little doodads? Uh, Tony, why don't you go first on this? What are your feelings about that? Um, I think it's uh, an unmitigated improvement. It's There's just simply no comparison. I mean... Uh I'd like to say that the kind of print-on-demand, ashy counters of <laughs> previous versions had a certain charm, but they—I really—they really didn't. I don't think. I don't. I, this is better in every way. Yeah, I don't miss those. <laughs> yeah, Bruce, what are your feelings on? Is there—is there anything, Bruce, that you feel is egregious or unnecessary or over the top? No, I don't find anything. Uh, I think that the the treasure tokens are a little. I mean, the multicolored things are just distracting. Um, because as you can see, there, there's some discrepancy between the rule book and what actually was produced, right? The rule book talks about, uh, about 10, we'll talk about the rule book in a minute. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. 10 natural colored cubes for uprisings. They're actually black, <laughs> um, talks about the treasure, the shows, the treasure tokens is being all clear. They're actually multicolored. It talks about the, uh, there being 15 pale yellow warships, uh, actually only 14, that, that's um, the way to drive a board gamer crazy. Yeah. Is tell him he's got one more. Is is basically make him think there's a piece missing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the thing that I I wanted to bring up is that I'm actually a little sad about the many changes that were made in the second edition that require a new map because I really liked a fan made map that was made by Tracy Baker. For the original edition, it is absolutely stunning. I think it's much better than the map that's provided with the game. And I hope that Tracy hears this and redoes the map for the second edition so that I can print that out. There's actually a company called Print and Play, which will make maps for you if you just send them the artwork. So I sent them Tracy's original artwork and they mounted it very nicely. And I was able to play the first edition with this uh, fan made art. And it's much, much better than the first edition map. And I actually think that it's better than the second edition map. And if it were to be made available as a second edition re-engineered, because there are things on the, in the second edition that you have to, obviously the, the numbers are different and the right. C's and things like that. But if Tracy were to make it again, he actually posted, it's posted on BoardGameGeek, so you can go to the first edition and look at the files there and see it. But if he could do that for the second edition, that would be great. It would in be general, huge. I, I think, yeah. So. It would be way bigger than the first edition uh, map. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I mean, they'll just make a big folding map. Right. <laughs> uh, I have you guys noticed the there was a kerfuffle on board Game Geek about the different colored backings on some of the cars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a oh, print yeah, run. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that you guys have noticed or that bothers you? I've noticed it. It doesn't really bother me. Uh, come on. I mean, just by playing the game a couple times, you're going to wear down certain cards more than others. I don't really care. I mean, if, if what they're talking about is how the Adventures deck uh, is slightly dark, the back is slightly darker on certain cards than others, right. I, it really doesn't bother me. I just don't look too closely while I'm preparing the deck. And it's not the kind of game, too, where you are ever looking at several cards and picking one. 
Correct. It's not like, like if right. I was given, okay, choose one of four cards, and I see one with a darker background, and I happen to know, which is the case, that the Korea incident has a darker background, I would choose that one. It's never that – it's almost never that situation. There can be a situation where you're always looking at the top card of an adventure deck, which is separate from the adventure cards you're using for the clock. If I see a dark card up there – because Korea incident is huge. It's an enormous card, especially if you're doing something that gets you points for uh, liberations. Uh so, so I actually – it does kind of bother me every now and then, but for the most part, I don't mind. It's not a big deal that some cards are misprinted. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I, I really like having it in a real box and not one of those wretched pizza boxes they used to do or yep. as was the case with Nemo's War. Originally, it's in a plastic uh, – it's in a baggie, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I love having the big board. Uh, I do wish – just minor, minor complaint – why isn't there a place on the board for me to put my crew members? Why do they have to sit off the board? <laughs> because you're, you're going to throw them overboard soon enough. Anyway. <laughs> That's and fine. Then they should be off the board. Like, they should be on the board near that Nautilus <laughs> display. And then when I, when I kill them, you know, you flip the tile. <laughs> then take them off the board. And that is literally how I imagine it. When I, you, when I use those <laughs> people, I imagine literally throwing them off the ship, which what is... Isn't that a coffin that the back is, really? Oh! Oh! Is that true? I think so. Looks I mean, like it one. looks God. like a refrigerator, but I guess that is what coffins would look like. That's probably yeah. what... It's a coffin! Ishmael yeah. wrote at the end of uh, Moby Dick. Oh. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about that track mechanic? Which where, track uh, mechanic? So, so where you can risk the hull, the crew, or Nemo's sanity. That, of course, Great. is a, a holdover from... The original game, mm-hmm. each track works a little differently, applies in different situations, mm-hmm. uh, and that's 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 also a huge loss condition, I think. Yeah. Like, you might lose by not having – by the seas filling with ships, by maxing out your notoriety, but also each of those tracks is something that you have to watch. You have control right. over two of them and that you can rest or refit, mm-hmm. but if Nemo goes crazy, the, the game's over then. Yeah. Uh, I, I normally – take issue with like tracks for the sake of tracks like i think tracks a lot of times are just a lazy way to do a game mechanic here i really like it i like how i kind of want nemo to be a little crazy but not too crazy right because then you get the maximum bonus i kind of wish there were that nemo's last bonus before he goes insane it would would be plus four because then it would really (laughs) give you an advance an uh what do you call it Incentive to keep him on the edge. To, to yeah, to really keep Nemo on the edge. I like how he gets as he gets crazier, he gets more useful. Yeah, yeah. But then he falls off the cliff, and you're you lose the game. I, I like that. I like the track mechanic a lot. I think it's neat that you get to risk one thing. Obviously, early on, I think you are risking the hull because it's the only plus three modifier. You have the ability to rest and refit. You get. There's some some of the treasures, in fact, and some of the adventure cards will give you the ability to get things back. Um, Nemo, Nemo can you can get uh, you can get bonus Nemo's so you can take Nemo down and then kind of rescue him. There's a card where I think resets him to determined. But I do like that track a lot. I like the fact that you I like the the way in which they represent. I think it's a very good interface design where in between the resources is the number. And you move the little indicator over the number to say, this is the bonus I'm getting. If I lose it, then if I win, I move it back. If I lose, I move it to the next half space. Right, right. Oh, that Not necessarily is... the next half space. You might move it two spaces. Depending. Yeah. Correct. 
that that you just made me realize why there's there's a weird little horseshoe marker because it's not it's not a, a, a marker regularly that you just put over to cover the the relevant value. It's a weird little horseshoe that I'm afraid is kind of fragile and might get bent eventually. But it's so you can move it to the bonus without covering what the actual bonus is. Well, it's it's you can move it to the bonus and then show the because you're you have to show the bonus right. and you have to show the penalty or bonus for the the card at the end of the game as well, right? So if you're if you are losing, if Nemo is almost insane, you lose ten points at the end of the game. So you want to have that uncovered as well. So you want to have the but number be- right, but that's, that's below the little the, circle. What's like why it's a portion a, instead of a circle? Right. If you had a solid circle, because my whole thing and Tony's with me on this is don't cover important information. Right. Uh, <laughs> so if if I just had a little circle, that would have worked fine in each slot. Because that bonus or penalty, that's outside of the slot. Uh, the only thing you'd be covering is the little flavor text for whether the crew is determined or demoralized or, so, or the, the whole is uh, ship shape. Like there's an adjective uh, that's flavor under each one. That's the only thing that would be covered. But Bruce, you just made me realize the moment you scooch it to the middle to risk that resource, then you would be covering the bonus. So hence the little horseshoe. Because uh, I thought at first the horseshoe was pointless, but I realize now. Yeah. Uh, Tony, you had a problem with important information being covered. <laughs> yes. Well, I just I I have been putting the Nautilus in such a way that it blocks the die number associated with the major ocean that it's in if it's in a major ocean. But you don't have to do that. I I'm with you. Though. Like I I'm always a little skeptical when they throw a toy into the game. Uh, and I guess I like the idea that the Nautilus is featured so prominently. Uh, but whenever I see a little plastic standee, like a little miniature figure, I'm like, come on, you didn't need to do that. I'm okay with it here, though. But, uh, yeah, you're right. It does stand a little tall. I kind of wish it stood behind some of the other information. Bruce, what's your what's your interface mod for that? Uh, I'm going to paint it. <laughs> it's even it's even going to be more distracting. Yeah. Bruce has been putting it to the to the, to the, the side, corner. yeah. You just yeah, turn it. Yeah. Like it's barely in the ocean. Like, it's just barely visiting. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, what kind of scores have you guys gotten? Uh, have you broken that to it? So basically, there's a little epilogue book. Uh, actually, that's one thing that I don't feel it's a little over the top printing wise. Yeah. Uh, is I don't I don't need a little book with a different paragraph and slightly varied mm-hmm. artwork for each victory threshold. Well, they couldn't resist because for uh, for Dawn of the Zeds, they there's like 17 different rule books. Uh, you have to read, and no, no one of them has all the rules of the game. Right, you have right. to read each of them in order and play through the game a hundred times before you know how to play it. At least in this one, they put all the rules in one book, but they couldn't resist throwing in another book. Now, actually, not, so yeah, before, we, before we talk scores, uh, how do we feel about the rules book? I oh, actually don't terrible. mind it. I actually don't mind it. Yeah. Okay, so terrible and don't mind it. I'm with Bruce on the terrible. Uh, T-Zone, have you not, Tony, have you had problems like you're okay with like looking for relevant information and you're, you're okay with the layout and the organization for the most part, again, coming from Dawn of the Zeds, which is a complete disaster rules wise. And I'm actually kind of surprised that they haven't issued at least a PDF of here's the rules, uh, because Dawn of the Zeds is an complete fuck up as far as the rules go. Um, compared to that, this is a cakewalk and, uh, you know, not everything is as convenient as it might be, but it didn't bother me as much as it seems to be bothering a lot of people on Board Game Geek or this podcast. Well, yeah. So, Bruce, what's your issue with the rules? Come on, it's all in one book. Oh yeah, it's it's all it's all there. <laughs> um, I find it 
difficult to read rules that are in this sort of narrative style with minimal cross-referencing without clear headers and there's all this extra stuff where they put their side notes i hate when they take ideas that they think are important and stick them on the side of the rules now i don't think in this game any of the actual rules are on the side but i don't like the long paragraph format i don't like the fact that the terms are it's just written in it's not a very precise rule book i would prefer shorter sentences with a more case-based kind of this is 1.0 this is your uh ship this 2.0 this is these are the cards etc etc tests test would be a separate thing what i think this is trying to do is it's game rules in this day and age i think are being written in such a way that you can pick up the game and you don't even have to read the rules right you sort of set the game up and then play the game while you're reading the rules and each part of the sequence of play you do while you read it which i think is a terrible way to do rules because then going back and looking anything up you have no idea where it is it's just in a random part of the rule book and for some reason the way i mean i have my rule book sitting right next to me and this kind of thing where the pages are full size but then they only use sort of two-thirds or three-quarters of the page oh here we go failing your attack roll if you fail your attack test you lose an amount of ship resource type exerted equal to one of the lowest die roll i mean they just take that and stick it in the corner now it is in the rules but then it's not even on that same page i find it i find the way that these rules are organized just incredibly difficult to find anything that i'm looking for i don't know where anything is and uh, i'm 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 not. I'm not a fan of the rules at all. Uh, so yeah, I'm. I'm with you in that. I. I would much. Their, their roots are in war games, and they used to write very war gamey, concise, well organized rule books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these second editions, for whatever reason, haven't been doing that. Uh, and I don't know if it's. Yeah, I, but I'm not happy with these as well. There's even a point. This drives me crazy. There's a point in these rules, and I was looking for it. I don't remember where it is, where it spells out a rule, and then it puts in parentheses, this is important. <laughs> As if every other rule isn't important. Right. Like, why do they need to right. – it's that same mentality, Bruce, that's like, hey, let's put this in the sidebar. Why on earth would you tell me a rule and then point out that this one rule is important? Yeah. When other, I mean that that's just that right there is their mindset is we're just kind of breezily discussing the rules. Oh, pay special attention to this one. Uh, you know, if it's a rule book, if it's written in there, it's important. It belongs in there. Every rule is significant. Uh, yeah. So just the the layout, the organization, the general tone behind these rules, uh, I I am not a fan of at all. Yeah. Um, so uh, okay. So let's see. Scores wise, uh, I don't think i've ever broken 250 points which is the threshold for getting the positive epilogues uh, i have not i have not gotten a score yet right because you were doing that thing with the scourge the seas thing well Tony, i've that, filled up the seas a couple times i had nemo go and i've had nemo go insane twice i filled up the seas twice and i've had nemo go insane twice and that's just on the playthroughs that oh and by the way on this on the well anyway those, that's just the four playthroughs that I, as far as I know, I've got all the rules correct. I've had about five other playthroughs where uh, I realized I had screwed up a rule uh, and had to start over. Right. 
Yeah. So, Which I uh, suspect is a more common thing that a lot of people believe. Uh, partly because I don't think that you can find a playthrough of this game on YouTube that does not have multiple people in the comments pointing out where the player fucked up. And I think that's a problem endemic to board games, especially solitaire games, but that may be a subject for another time. Well, I also think it's a, it's a, especially a problem with the way these rules are written. Like, I think that yeah. could be avoided. Uh, and uh, before we hear Bruce's scores, uh, Tony, you at one point were quizzing us about rules, and you were also saying there were there were rules that weren't written in the manual that uh, uh, that it turns out were. But I want to confess something to you. You said to us something about yeah, there's a special rule about steam torpedoes that is not in the manual, and I. Later, and I wrote back to you. Yes, it is. Uh, I had no idea about that rule until you yep. mentioned it, and I was like, "No, Tony's wrong. Let me just verify before I correct him and make an ass of myself." <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, that is in there. None of my games counts." There you go. And that's because of how the rules are organized. So there's a really cool upgrade called a steam torpedo, and normally the Nautilus bangs into ships to sink them. Uh, what this game presupposes is maybe Nemo researched torpedo, like he came up with a, a rudimentary torpedo where he could attack from range, and that's one of the Nautilus upgrades. And the rules go on and they explain this thing as that you get a free attack on any ship, and you get great odds to sink the ship, but at some point, if you ever miss, then your odds decline dramatically. And it's not clear from the rules, but I think on Board Game Geek, what Alan Emmerich has said is – once the Imperial powers realize what you're doing with the torpedo, they know how to look out for it and avoid it. So once you miss, that represents, oh, they figured out how to, to spoof your torpedo or they, mm -hmm. they figured out how to see it coming. Um, so there's all these mentions in there. There's a couple of places that describe the steam torpedo is you get a free attack and it's awesome. A free attack, free attack every turn. Sweet. So I'd been playing, just getting my free attack, just rolling the dice and sweet. I sunk that badass ship. I don't have to do battle with it. Otherwise, it would have been terrible. And then I put it in my little scoring track. Uh, that's not how it works. And there's only one point in the rules, one tiny little reference kind of implying, and it implies clearly, that a steam torpedo attack has to be done in the course of a regular combat round. And I had no idea about that. I'd just been assuming free attack meant something uh, well, that it uh, didn't mean. No, well, okay, right. It does mean free in the sense that it doesn't cost an action point. Right. Right, but you play it like you, you, are, you are risking the same things you're risking in an attack. So what I thought by free was I don't have to risk anything. I you're don't not risking risk all anything. the same things because in an attack you're probably risking one of your ship resources, and in this case you're not. In fact, you can't. Oh, wait, no, uh, the, the, a warship fires back at you. That's what, I, that's what I'm getting at is I was no, no, no. never giving the warships uh, their attack turn. I mean to get the DRM on your own attack. You, you don't get, get a DRM on. You yeah, not risk anything. torpedo. No, I know that's what I'm saying. You don't. Okay. That's the thing you don't risk. Right, right. But you are risking damage. I should point out using it against merchant ships. That's fine. Do that till the cows come home. That I was doing fine. But I wasn't letting warships attack me before doing the steam torpedo because there's only one little place in the rules where it specifies uh, steam torpedoes are normal attacks. Everything else is like free attack, free attack, free attack. So I wasn't I wasn't exposing the Nautilus to warship fire because that's super obscure in the rules and it shouldn't be uh, like that. That needs to be clear. I, so every single game I've played of this gets an asterisk. Yeah. 
Right. Bruce, did so, you know that until so then Tom, you really, you don't have a score either. Neither of us has, has achieved a score. Right. Right. Exactly. I don't think I I don't think I actually knew that either. But oh, I've my used, God, I've never used the steam torpedo. Ah, well, you're missing out, my friend. The steam well, torpedo is yeah. awesome. Let's hear your score, Bruce, and then let's find out why it's invalid, because I'm going to quiz you on some rules. <laughs> OK, so wait real uh, quick. Bruce, I, I want to this is another thing that drives me crazy about the rules. Yes. And I know why they do it. Mm-hmm. And they need to stop it. Uh, there's a little point in the sidebar where it says, hey, if you want to be super realistic, oh my don't God. use the steam yeah, torpedo right, right, against right. the sea serpent or the blimp. Right. Don't make that a rule or don't make right. it a rule. Right. Yes. Put your damn right. Yeah. You're design your freaking game. <laughs> right. Don't ask me to do it. Dill right. holes. I agree. Yes. With oh, you. So I angry. That's yeah. I, I, I hate I hate optional rules of any type. Yeah. Uh, Especially like. Even it's not even an optional rule. It's like it, maybe you want to do it this right. way. No, <laughs> it's not up to me. You made the freaking game. Yes. You are telling. I'm. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I'm gonna flip a table right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah that, the, that, that I saw that rule and I just thought that's. I no. I'm just ignoring that. That there. There's no rule that says, hey, if you want a realistic game, maybe you should. That that just a realistic it's, it's, game it's, based on yeah. twenty thousand leagues under right, the sea. Right, right. I will say I do use that rule though, and it's never come up where I've had the steam torpedo when I've run into the blimp or the sea yeah. serpent. But right. I will not be using steam torpedoes against blimps or sea serpents yeah. if that ever comes up. Yeah. Well, I've never used the steam torpedo, so I've. I've will you use it against a blimp or a sea serpent if it comes uh, up? Nor that Dep- depends how close the game is. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I should go by the rules as written and not do that. But it just it just feels weird shooting a steam torpedo at a blimp. Tony, by the way, you that rule? by the way, I, I want to point out one other thing about the rules. Um, it's just a design thing. Why is it that when you roll for your attack on the enemy ships, you have to roll equal to or less than their defense? But when they roll. Uh, or equal to or less than sorry, equal, equal right. to or greater than their defense. I have an answer for this. Go on. Oh, oh, yeah. Go on. But why, when they roll against you, they have to roll above their attack or below, below their attack? Can't, why, why is one equal and not one, the other one not equal to? I have an answer for that. Okay, I have an answer as well. Okay. Uh, Tony, you do your answer first because we might have the same one. All you have to remember is one thing. Equal to is good for you. <laughs> You have a mnemonic device for it. Uh-huh. I, I think I, I'm with that, but I think the idea is it wants a consistency across the game where a high number is always good, and you don't have to then worry about matching something or getting higher is always in the player's favor. Matching, well, you're saying the same thing as I'm saying. Mine right, right, no, no, I agree. Yeah, I'm agreeing. I just don't have a fancy mnemonic device. For matching it. something or higher is always in the player's favor. Okay, I guess like, that's that's to say, me that's to me that's not as consistent as having something be equal to or less than rather than just less than right your rules for hitting something are different than the warships rules for hitting something yeah. those that bothers me that yeah. that inconsistency bothers me more than the fact that what is good for the player is somehow do, do your mantra correct. again tony how does that work equal to is good for you <laughs> all you have to remember is equal to an, an equal an equal or greater is a positive result and uh for you it's a good result for you and I less see. than is a bad okay. result for you all right i think of i think of hit versus hit Right, right, right. And we're just thinking of consistency on die rolls. You're right. thinking of consistency in the outcome for the player. Okay, fair players. enough. That's fine. That's fine. At least that's okay. That, at least that's an explanation. Yeah. Now, now tell me the, another thing. In the rising action card, the hollow explosion. Yeah, thing? sure. Yep. I'm right yeah. here. Where does that ship go? Where's the? Oh, one. I have the answer to this. It's an easy mm-hmm. one. Why is there even a question there? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. 
goes in the same motion that the Nautilus is in. Okay. What does it replace a hidden ship marker? No, it does no. not. And what in if fact, the ocean if the, is full. If the ocean is full, That's his then yeah. it creates its own additional space. And now the ocean holds. Now the ocean is full plus that ship. That's just the way it is. Yep. Car. It's, it's an example, Garrick, of cards always override the game's rules. What says on the card, do that, even if it compromises the rules of the game. Yet you don't do that for the sunken treasure fleet. Well, the sunken treasure fleet isn't a ship. But it, what the sunken treasure fleet says is place it in the. No, the, Bruce is right. Bruce is right. Here. That you're in. Otherwise, you have to use the special placement rule. So, th- so that's another thing. Why well, do I have to do okay, special treasure yeah. placement with the sunken treasure fleet, but I don't do special ship placement with the ship that comes in the rising? That's action? a fair. I think that's a valid point. No, it's not. <laughs> Why is it not? Uh, I'm not sure what. So, because the sunken treasure fleet is a marker, it is not a ship. Oh, yeah. But what about the treasure gem? The gem. Sure, I'm talking place. about the gem. Yeah, that's that's a, that's not a fair point too, because there's a you when you are told to do that to place a gem where there's already a gem, the rules tell you what to do. There are other there are other times where you have to put a gem where there's already a gem. It's no, not that's just a card only, only on the adventure deck. No, you you roll it when when you're rolling for uh when That's there's right. lull turns lull when there's turns. a lull and you're adding gems. Oh, Bruce. If you roll a uh, an ocean that already are has a gem. The rules you, explain. Uh, put maybe it in Bruce. Maybe Bruce has been playing lull turns wrong. Bruce, yeah, do you maybe. know what a lull turn is? Oh, I was actually I was going to ask you if you knew what a lull turn was. <laughs> By the way, a real quick. Uh, so once you get three white dice in play. You have far more control over yep. lull turns. So if right. you're playing an anti-imperialism goal, you are going to have three dice in play longer. And lull turns are when your your uh, anti when your liberation cubes can get knocked off the board. So if you're playing a warlike uh, game, you have your anti your liberation cubes at risk uh, over less time. I love. By that the way, I, I just want to point out to are you telling me that the that if you on a lull turn, you can have two treasures in an ocean. No, you can never have That's two treasures true. in an ocean. Correct. So what are you saying that I've been playing lull turns wrong? No, I was making a joke. Oh, I, no, I'm saying <laughs> that, but but you're but you're playing. The point is that you always the the the, the treasures can never double up. Right. The only place you can double up a treasure is you have more more treasure counters on the adventure deck. Right. right? Which is why what makes the adventure deck awesome is it can right. build. In oh yeah, yeah, exactly. But you can apparently overstack the ship right. without any clear... I, I guess my point is, I mean, I understand that they should be a clarification, but that should be written in the rule, right? Yes. Oh, it 100%. Is. It should. is it? Yeah. Where? 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 I think that is. Are you talking about the treasure or the, the no. uh, overstacking? The, the overstacking. I will forward you the page number after we record this. Okay. Right. Sounds good. And if, if I'm wrong... Uh, then what happens? I'll re-record a disclaimer. I'll, I'll put a disclaimer at the <laughs> beginning gonna, of this podcast. No, you know what you should do? You're going to have to issue an errata podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so Bruce, what sort of scores have you been getting? So I got a couple scores in the mid-hundreds, which uh, for the listeners is a definite defeat. Yep. And you read the little defeat paragraph. But my last, the last game I played, or I should say, the last game I completed before I sat down to record this podcast, because I was in the middle of one and then I ran out of time, was a victory by one point. I got 251 points on nice, the Nice, you lore broke mode. 
on, on the what? It was on war. You broke the 250 point uh, barrier. Nice. Oh, it was on the war. No, explore. Oh, explore. All right. Yeah. So with all that treasure potential and all that math that you did to explain to us why treasures can rack up so <laughs> many points for you, you uh, just barely eked out one point above <laughs> a loss on the treasure track. That's how it should be, right? <laughs> so, but that's a that's a thing in terms of the the um, what would you call it? The balance of solitaire games, right? Is needs to be a lot different than the balance of a two-player game. The balance of a, of a two-player game should be that if each player plays optimally, then they'll win half the time because the, 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 the outcome is in the balance of the die rolls. But if you're playing a solitaire game, then it should be the case that if every, play, if, if every one of your plays is optimal, you should win, I don't know, how many? One out of five times? I would go with that. I mean, yeah, yeah. You should definitely lose more often than you win. Oh, I'm yeah. okay with that in solitaire board games. Oh, yeah, right me too. Yeah. yeah. So Fire I would it. say that I'm, I'm ahead of the curve then. Okay. <laughs> we'll play four more games and then let yeah. us know. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But I, I found that the I had to optimize. So that when I lost the, the games, when I played the games in the hundreds, I really had to optimize my moves and I, that's the thing. I didn't think that the moving two spaces was that helpful, but it actually oh. is terribly helpful. Yeah, yeah, it's because, very helpful. Yeah, because what it do, what it actually allows you to do is it allows you to go quickly to the oceans that have treasure, and it also allows you to even out your scourge of the seas because scourge of the seas is a huge thing because you're getting victory points for evenly eliminating ships, right? So if you have this the a bunch of ships in the North Pacific and and South Pacific, but you're or actually I think it's South Pacific is one of the there's Western Pacific is one of the major oceans, and then let's say what Western Pacific and North Atlantic. If you kill all your ships there and you don't kill any ships in any of the other oceans, then you don't get any scourge of the seas. You have to sort of kill you know four in each, and then you get the the score for the for the four ships killed. And it's hard to move around and get those things without. Uh, wasting a significant amount of time if you're not if you don't have a, a ship that moves double. Now of course. With an explore mode, if you really want, there's the one card that puts a bunch of treasure tokens out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want a bunch of lull turns because you want the treasure tokens to go on the adventure deck. I mean, there there are things that the game, the things that have to happen in the game that are unlikely to happen in any given game, right? That are only going to happen once every few games. And if all those things come together, then you're you have a good chance of winning. If they don't, then you're kind of going to be up against it because the system is always obviously overpowered. That's the whole point of solitaire games. Yeah. And I do like a lot the fact that you only basically run into about half of the adventure cards in the game on any given playthrough. Uh, I I love when there are uh, critical components in a game that are left out of a playthrough. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like that a lot because it makes each playthrough different. Uh, Yeah. Do you guys have a favorite adventure card? Because I was really – I mentioned that Korea incident that lets you just go to the – Pacific, and you roll a D a D three, and just drop a bunch of cubes down. Although I've always, you know, I've gotten that like three times. I think you drop a bunch of only... cubes down, but you're not, but you don't get the notoriety. Uh, no, but you get the points. Yeah, you got the points, but then for I, the rest of the game, you run the risk of them those cubes going away on a low turn. If you're, I, not if you're I never want to drop. Not if you're in the third act. You you always have control over where there's a well. Low, well, you could uh, roll, you roll three. You're never going to do that. Number. That's statistically impossible. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I think that I think the issue, though, is that the uprising chart is 
or mechanic is much more useful to me for notoriety management than anything else. Right. And I, I don't really think it's that great to place cubes if I'm not getting the notoriety. Now, the thing I do like is I like that Arabian tunnel that allows you to move from. Oh my gosh! Because otherwise, the European seas are such a dead end. It's like a cul-de-sac. Yeah. There. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's that really that really is helpful. You can just shoot right out of the European seas into the uh, what is it the in no it's the it's Indian Ocean. Is it Indian Ocean? Yeah. So yeah. you just kind of shoot through there, and then boom, there you are. Um, I like that one. Uh, but I like the one because I play. I like playing explore and science. I like the one that that puts all the all the treasures out. Um, I just like digging through the the treasure bag and pulling out a wonder, and being like, "Ooh, it's the lost city of whatever!" Right? Yeah, <laughs> well, that that's something new in in this second edition. They name all the ships. I love that the ships have names. Mm-hmm. They uh, even name the little uprising spaces mm-hmm. on the board. Yeah. I love yeah. that. I that's love really knowing cool, exactly. Yeah. yeah, what's the revolution that you're supporting? Uh, yeah. I've even made this a legacy game in that. Anytime a ship kills me mm-hmm. and ends the game, mm-hmm. I put a little red mark on the ship tile. Whoa! Yep, I'm marking up my copy. It's a wow. legacy game now. It is now. That is persistent. blasphemy. That's amazing. I, try it. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Tony, did you have rules quizzes for us? Did, did you really have rules? Yeah, I have some rules, rules yeah. quizzes for you. Yeah, all right. So uh, we're going to go through this. Now, some of these start off fairly uh um low level mistakes mm-hmm. that I you guys may not have made but they're mistakes that I made over the course of playing this game um now when I uh here I feel like I need to preface this ladies and gentlemen <laughs> this is the quarter to 3 games podcast rules quiz featuring your contestants Tom Chick and Bruce Garrick today's episode Nemo's War all right um so guys, uh, when I play a new game, I consider it a great luxury to uh, when I'm to have those all those counters in that in the counter thing. I know I, I don't just punch them all out before I read the rules and, and start trying to play the game because I don't know what the significance of the counters is. I don't know how I should sort them. Uh, I you know I don't know if some counters can go away for almost every playthrough and almost never be used, or, or which counters are going to be used in every single playthrough. So which are more important, which are less important. So I consider it a great luxury to have these unpunched sheets. And as I'm learning the rules, I punch out the counters that the rules tell me I need, mm-hmm. and uh, they're all nicely organized there in those counter sheets. So when you guys were learning the game, uh, did you have the counter sheets with the treasure tokens on it facing so that the front sides were facing you? Uh, and then when the game said, put all the treasures in the treasure bag, <clears throat> did you only punch out the, uh, right. some of the treasure tokens because their faces looked different and from the other treasure tokens? So you filled the treasure bag with just the, uh, half the treasure tokens because they look different. Is that a mistake right. you guys made? I'm going to guess Bruce and I are the same, and that as soon as I get a game, every single piece gets punched out of the sprue. I want piles of tokens. I generally sort them by shape and my own guess about what's important or what's not important, and then I read the rules and sort everything accordingly. So, no, that didn't happen with me because I can't imagine leaving pieces in those sprues. Bruce? Yeah. Bruce? All right, I guess that's his answer. I had a, uh, a little mute there so that uh, there was no noise while Tom was talking. But my answer here is that the 
first thing I do with any game is that I take the counters and I scan them front and back. Then I put them in a file. Uh, so even if I hadn't known that the fronts and were different, but the backs were the same, once I flipped the counters over, it became clear that all the tokens were, all the treasure tokens were the same. So that never became an issue. And I also think I remember from the first edition. What do you mean you scan them, you weirdo? What? I take all the all my counter sheets for every right. game that I have, and right. I scan the front, and I scan the back, and I put it in a file on my computer that has scanned counter sheets so that if I ever need to know, do I have all the counters for this game, I just print the thing out and put them on the counter sheet. That's even weirder than sleeving cards. Hmm. But I would say it's not as weird as taking a marker and marking <laughs> a ship because it kills you. That's, what if the same ship kills you ten times? You're just going to have a card that looks a ship that looks like it has chicken pox. That's yeah. right. I'll dread that thing all the more, and I'll I'll hunt it down. I'm, uh, I'm I dread it now, and I'm not even looking at it. <laughs> I'm giving it meta significance. That's Ugh. a pretty neat idea. I think you should make little stickers, like you know how the the, the you know. Uh, uh, aircraft in World War II, they painted the the symbol <laughs> on the cockpit. You can right. make little stickers and just little Nemo, uh, Nautilus stickers and just put them on the thing. Yeah. It should be, yeah, Tom's face repeatedly <laughs> over and over. <laughs> the problem is ships don't kill me often enough. I thought it would be a cool touch for how to keep track of ships that killed me. But what happens if a, if a, a card kills me or something? Yeah. It's not as cool as I thought it would be. Punch it with a hole punch. (laughs) (laughs) Like a subway card. Yeah. Yeah, Sandwich. All right, Tony, what's our next quiz? Uh, Here's another one. Did you, uh, if you guys are anything like me during setup, you may not have put a hidden ship token in the South Pacific where you're supposed to. Either you guys make that mistake. Well, it's got an outline on the board. <laughs> it has that dark <laughs> outline. So it's okay, pretty... never mind. We're moving on to the next question. <laughs> got it. Um, you guys, uh, we've already covered this, so I think you guys probably got this. When you are doing any kind of um, exertion of a resource, is what it's called, and you uh, fail the roll. Yes. If either die does not have a one on it, right. you lose... Two of the things yes, you that you just lost. That is correct. Yeah. And that's in addition to any thing that a card tells you to lose, etc. Right. It's painful. Yeah, no, I, I knew yeah. that. It's a weird rule, but uh, yeah. It's, 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 you know what? And it runs counter to this idea that you always want to roll higher. Yes, that's true. That's Boy, actually true. That's a good point. Yeah. Wait. But no, I am aware of that. It's a little clunky, what? but I am yeah, aware of oh, Wait, the, hold Oh, yeah, because if you if you roll lower, then you only lose that one. And it's the same thing with the hits for the yeah. um, well, for I guess warships. Yeah, for warships, if you if you roll a if you roll really low, as long as it's not a double one, then you uh, as long as it's not snake eyes, then that one means you only take one hit. So, yes, it's, it is that is that does break that roll. So I'm so I'm I'm back to not liking the uh, okay. equal two or less than thing. <laughs> um. All right, when you successfully search, do you always remember to remove a treasure available token? Oh, yes, because I want yeah. those. I look at those and I covet them. Yeah. The gems? You covet yeah. those? Yeah, they're cool. Talking they're they're three dimensional objects. They're, I want to get it off the board and own it and have it. Yeah. Weirdo. <laughs> what? what? You don't? Um, no. Okay. When you, I'm sure you guys always add one. Here's what I've forgotten real quick though, T Zone, with searching yeah. is I'm constantly forgetting it's not negative one for a warship in the in the sea. It's negative one for each ship 
in the sea. Searching is super difficult. Right, right, right. Searching is super difficult uh, once the board gets gets crowded. Yep, that's That's right. Um, That's why you need an arcane library. Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm sure you guys know that when you successfully uh, do subsequent bold attacks, you add one notoriety, unless you have the periscope device. Right. Okay. Uh, when you incite, when you do an incite oh, action. Here's the thing that I keep yes. forgetting. Oh. I keep forgetting to take the notoriety from the actual ship token. Because well, I'm Tom, so elated at that point. Hey, yeah, I sunk it. Am I going to salvage it or put it on the scoring track? Yeah. Mm, oh, I'll salvage it. Oh, what card oh, can I buy now? Okay, moving on. And then exactly. later I'm like, wait a minute. That's supposed to be a two notoriety hit. Did I take that? Yeah, that's a huge pain in the ass. And I think that, anyway, okay. Uh, when you would do an incite action... Do you make sure to subtract one from your dice yes. roll per insight cube that's already there? Yep, and for each revealed ship, not just warship. That is correct. Because I, I do have a sense that that's another thing. Like Bruce loves the mobility, and there's a you know the mobility is important. Is you need to move around and spread those insights around. Generally, yep. encouraging yeah. you don't just you know hit the Pacific hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, do insights around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Here's one that I know Tom asked about on Board Game Geek, and after it was repeatedly explained to him, he still didn't get it. Let's see if he gets it now. <laughs> when you spend treasures to influence certain die rolls, as you can, for instance, insight, and maybe some some other cases that I'm not thinking of, the treasure that you spend cannot just be any old treasure token that you drew out the bag. It has to specifically have treasure victory points on it that, that is, is incorrect. a little diamond icon incorrect. not the wonder icon right thomas you got that that is incorrect first of all that is not <laughs> Wait, true I, I i totally knew what i was asking and i was correct so if you are spending a treasure token on say refitting or resting the bonus is it refitting or resting yeah the bonus is the number of treasure victory points that that token awards you so if it's a wonder of the world, it does not give you a bonus. You have to spend something that gives you treasure victory points to get a bonus on refit or uh, or rest. Mm. Does, that include your, does that include your motive modifier? No. Why? no. However, what I was asking about is what about if you get a result on that table that says spend a treasure? Can I spend a wonder of the world? Like if I am doing a repair, and it's what's called an expensive repair in that I've used a treasure token maybe for a modifier, uh, but if then the result says, okay, uh, discard a treasure token, does it have to be a wonder – can I use a wonder of the world? The manual says of any type. Right. Um, So I got it right. Hold on. Okay. Wait a minute. Blah, 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 blah. Looking up in sight real quick. Okay, now I'm not appreciating this uh, manual. <laughs> in sight, I think you need treasure victory points because if it's if it's going to modify a die right. roll, it, it's, it's implying that it needs a monetary value. You're putting yeah. money into it, and these wonders of the world they don't count for money. Right. But when you need to burn a treasure token, everything's fair game. Because for instance, there are treasure tokens that are worth zero treasure victory points. Burn those. Like those are great fodder to throw away when you're forced to discard a treasure token. Oh yes, correct. Right. But but when you're using treasures to bribe people to revolt during your incite action. You need treasure victory points. It has to be treasure victory points, but actually now I can't find that in the manual. But it's because it's not under incite. Oh great. It's actually under resolving tests. 
<laughs> okay, we will move on. That one, uh, that that question on the quiz gets an asterisk because I don't think we know. <laughs> um, it it okay, actually already... says plus X for okay. sort of die roll modifiers plus plus X for spending treasure. You can only spend, i.e., discard a maximum of one treasure token per rest, refit, repair, or incite test action, and that treasure token must have a treasure victory point value on it. You receive the spent token's treasury VP value as a plus DRM for that test. But I agree with you, Tony. It's definitely murky. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Um, we've already covered steam torpedo attacks, which, uh, fortunately Ugh. for Tom, we've covered previously over email, so he doesn't have to be publicly embarrassed on his own podcast. Oh, but I still am. I can't believe I didn't do that. <laughs> steam torpedoes used to be so awesome. And, uh, they're still pretty awesome, in my opinion. They are, but I was, like, sinking the most powerful warships right and left with impunity. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, here's one. So, for the, uh, filling up the board loss condition... Um, it is the board, if every space on the board has a ship token in it, mm-hmm. uh, and then you have to, and then you're supposed to, and then you, the game tells you to place an additional warship, you instantly lose the game. Now, right. no, when they yeah, say... You can flip the, the non-warships. Huh? You can, you can flip, flip a, non- a non-warship to its aggressive side, to its warship side. Not if the whole... Not, that's, not if can. the whole board's full. Yes, sir. Yep. You can. yep, that's the whole point. So there's the rules on placement, and I love these are printed on the board. There's a four step. There are four steps you go through for placement, and the moment you hit one of those, you have uh, meet the requirement for for that placement action, basically. And one of those, I think it's the very last one, is flip a merchant ship to its warship side. But Tony, you're saying you think no. that that would lose no. you the game? Hold on, wait a second. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. There is nowhere to place a hidden ship marker in the ocean you rolled or a neighboring ocean. Oh, right, right. You did bring this up. Go ahead. You and all the ocean spaces in those oceans contain revealed ship tokens. Then you flip over one white non-warship token there to show its gray warship side. That's yep. correct. Yeah. But uh, 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 okay. So if there's nowhere to place a hidden ship marker in that or a neighboring ocean, all of the ocean spaces, blah blah blah. I kind of see what you're saying. So, Tony, is, is a, there's a passage where it says the game ends if every ocean is completely full of ship tokens, revealed or unrevealed, when a warship needs to be placed anywhere in the world. So what Tony is saying, and I didn't know this, is if you had unrevealed ship tokens, uh, which is those little periscope markers, mm-hmm. and you're supposed to put a warship marker down, you don't just and, – and all the spaces are full – you don't just take off an unrevealed warship token a ship token and put the warship down you lose the game tony is saying yeah right? how the game ends number three yeah yeah and ends... i did not know that i'm guessing okay, Bruce great. Go ahead. Yeah. the game ends if every ocean is completely full of ship tokens revealed or unrevealed when a warship needs to be placed anywhere in the world so to me that means uh, uh it sounds like we're not we don't agree on what that means we, no, we, I think you're right, Tony. I think you definitely. No, got I us think on you're that. right. Yeah, you definitely got us on that one. I never, it never would have occurred to me to know when that I draw either. a warship that no, I, I didn't. Just, okay. when I, that I can't just put it down where an, uh, an unrevealed ship marker is. It right. never well, would have occurred to me. There we go. So yeah. I found a rule that neither of you knew. Yeah. And that so I bet guys... a lot of people are breaking. Like that's that's kind of a big deal. That's an exception to the normal placement rules. Which, which of course it should say under D. Or sorry, under C, if there's nowhere to place a hidden ship marker in that or a neighboring ocean, all the ocean spaces in those right. oceans contain revealed ship tokens 
it, I mean, it should be that should be up in B, really. If yeah. there's no empty space to place a hidden ship token adjacent ocean, replace one hidden ship marker with your choice with a revealed ship. But then it should say, if there's no empty space to play that hidden ship, and you're placing a warship, and there are no empty spaces, then you lose. Right. No but empty it spaces. Says that when you go to page on the board, 26. Yeah. You just you just fast forward to page 26, and then you know. You say. Yeah, that's it. That's that's crazy. It's there should be that should be a giant bold statement that should be that should be in bold under b why isn't that in one of their dopey sidebars it is in the sidebar on page 16 actually (laughs) uh it is it is on this and it's in the sidebar where it's talking about placement uh draw warship from the ship draw pool if there are no it is tony's right you lose ah you're right those stupid sidebars so, Bruce, are you 100% sure that you even completed this 251-point game? <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm sure about, because uh, that, that was one of the questions that I was having, was, uh, whether, I was whether I wanted to keep the board free so that I could place extra hidden tokens. And for some reason, I was just like, eh, I should probably not have everything fill up with hidden so I was always keeping something free. And I think in the, in the last picture, I have a couple things free. But yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I could have lost. I, it's, it's possible that if I hadn't if I had made a different decision, I would have actually that game would be tainted. That's right. Yeah. Wait, that's, that's so weird because, yeah, it's it's just so poorly written. But it's and it's in the sidebar. I mean, it just it's it's in the sidebar, but not in the actual rule. Well, the thing is, it's in the sidebar, too, only after you have done – let's see, replace it with a ship drawn from the draw pool. Yeah, like why haven't you placed the ship under step B? Yeah, exactly. Everything's full. There's a unre- There uh, are markers for unrevealed ship tokens. I'm going down the list. I hit B. I put the warship where the unrevealed ship token was. Yeah, exactly. I would never even hit D. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's Perfect. going on there? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. All right, yeah, let's know. all flip a table. This is a that's absurd. Yeah, I can't believe there are not there's not an ongoing discussion on Board Game Geek. Well, about I think that we're going to start one because that just you bet. just could do it right now. Yeah, that's yeah. that that has to be a result because that that's a clear that means that their little algorithm stops at B and you never get to C or D if that specific if there are if if the whole uh, board is filled with ships or hidden ship tokens and you've drawn a warship, not a non warship. Yeah. I, my rule of thumb is always follow the rules as written. Exactly. Here, the rules as written are telling me two different things. Yep, that's exactly true. All right, so uh, we're going to get – There's nothing stopping some... you from going to C. Yeah. yeah. Except a sidebar that – who knows? Tony, you've basically punched a hole in the side of the game, and now it's sinking. Yes. <laughs> well, I believe Tom calls that meta progression. <laughs> so then the only thing this needs is procedural generation, and it's a roguelike. That's right. How are you guys? All right. All right. Well, thanks to everyone for listening. This has been our Nemo's War podcast. I think we're all thumbs up on this, though, overall, right? Like uh, as far as solitaire board games go, what's your overall assessment on this? Tony? Um, I think it's great. I really like it a lot. And uh, I'm going to keep playing until I beat Bruce's score. (laughs) Bruce, your overall takeaway? I I think it's a I think it's an excellent game. I it it does. it, It is a little bit kind of roll your own adventure. I mean, there are not. It has much less sort of strategic yeah. decision making than some other really good solitaire board games, but I think that the way that the the, the theme is executed and the way that it's pre- all presented and and there is enough 
decision making that it tells it just tells a really great story about this very familiar book and i think that the way it all is put together the components the illustrations the mechanics except for the terrible rule book uh this is a big thumbs up for me and that's what makes it work for me as well is that i i love stories and games and this is a great hey sit back and a a cool story is going to unfold and you get to drive it basically so that's one reason i really like it as a solitaire game so all right well thanks for everyone listening nemo's war available from victory point games Thumbs up from all of us. Uh, Come on back next week, and we'll talk to you guys then. Cheers. 